0: Christ, God in the flesh for you and for the forgiveness of your sins. God fills us with his love and it
1: overflows in an abundant way as the people of God that he has called us to
2: be. From Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska, this is Proclaiming the One with Pastors Clint Poppy and Adam Moline.
1: Welcome once again to Proclaiming the One. Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar is out and about today, so we're two-manning it. It is great to have you with us. Each week we come together, we take a look at the upcoming readings for our Sunday Divine Service. Today we're going to enter into that, um, oh, I don't know, no man's land of the liturgical calendar, that part that is neither fish nor fowl, sometimes called the pre-Lent time in the church year the odd crazy latin name sundays the Jesima sundays and today we are going to be looking at septuagesima which in a basic way just basically tells us that we are about 70 days before easter pastor uh, any comments on these pre lent sundays before we jump into our text
0: Uh, Well, they are kind of a unique thing to the traditional one-year lectionary, and all it is is uh, narrowing down our focus, uh, switching us from the season of Epiphany and preparing us for the season of Lent. And so in that way, it's very good uh, for us to even consider uh, our own sin and the coming of our Lord and Savior to die on the cross for us, and so I think that's a positive thing.
1: Yes, and they tie really well into Lutheran theology uh, because the emphasis can be not not too much of a stretch, but they can be narrowed down into uh, grace alone, word alone, faith alone. And so uh, just kind of keep that general thought in the back of your mind. It's not... It's not a uh, real hard and fast way to look at these Sundays, but it is one way to look at them. The Gospel reading for Septuagesima is Matthew 20,
0: to 16 Pastor? Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into the vineyard Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first will be last.
1: The last will be first, the first will be last. That's the overarching theme of the uh, gospel reading that is before us. And again, that was Matthew 20, 1-16, the gospel reading for Septuagesima. Uh, Septuagesima. I think is probably the proper way to pronounce that. so
0: it depends if you use uh, vulgar Latin that was actually Latin in the old days or if you use ecclesiastical Latin or something in between. So yeah well, I'm pretty vulgar so uh, we'll, uh... <laughs>
1: anyway, you get the you get the drift, you get the point. Okay. now most people when they hear this text, this reading from Matthew 20, the first thought that comes to their mind is it's just not fair. It's just not fair that the people who have worked longer should be getting paid the same as the people who worked a shorter period of time. If, uh, if you were in your workplace today and somebody only punched the time clock for an hour or two, and somebody had been there eight or ten or twelve hours, and they all got the same pay, we would cry out, that's, uh, that's not right, that's not fair. Pastor, why is that the wrong way to look at this text?
0: And why
1: help us with that it's not fair notion.
0: Well, uh, saying that uh, it's not fair sort of thing is a bad confession about ourselves and ultimately I would say a self-justifying uh, word. Uh, the truth is is that none of us are worthy and we don't deserve anything, and so anything we get is entirely a gift, and I think that's what's behind this uh, if we really consider it that way. Saying uh, it's not fair, I deserve more is putting yourself above where you actually are, It's uh, pushing yourself forward and telling God, you know, if we understand the parable correctly, that uh, you deserve something more than he's giving you. And that, of course, is uh, denying that you're a sinful person who sinned in thought, word, and deed, by your fault, your own fault, your own most grievous fault. Uh, And so I think that's a bad confession.
1: Okay, so what then is Jesus driving at in this particular text? He tells this story, uh, this parable. And this is a kingdom of heaven parable. Not all of the parables are kingdom of heaven parables, but uh, this one specifically is because Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like. When Jesus is uh, telling these kingdom of heaven parables, Pastor, uh, how are we to understand them in a general overarching sense?
0: Well, um, I guess the way to say it most simply is uh, exactly what Jesus says. The kingdom of heaven is like these things. It's trying to put what is beyond human understanding and ability to explain uh, into a way which we can wrap our minds around. And so uh, Jesus does this, he explains sort of what the picture of heaven is like by using simple and easy to understand terms like uh, farming and seeds growing and uh, banquets and in this case, you know, getting your wages from a job. Uh, He uses these simple, easy to understand everyday things that we can wrap our brains around to give us a picture of what heaven is going to be like. And yet the reality of what heaven is like is way beyond what human words can actually understand and describe and so it's a difficult thing that jesus is doing rather well in this particular case
1: so so if i'm hearing you correctly when jesus is giving a kingdom of heaven parable he's teaching in this parable not everything about the kingdom of heaven but one specific point or one specific aspect of what the kingdom of heaven is like is that is that a right way to look at these things well, yeah.
0: Each one of the parables is teaching us a slightly different thing about what the kingdom of heaven is like, so that we can sort of get a, a larger picture of what it's like. Uh, and like I said before, it's doing this using easy to understand human pictures or similes or uh, things like that, so that we can wrap our mind around it. Okay, Mo-
1: most people understand what work is. Most under most people understand uh, working uh, an honest day for an honest day's wage. So that's the that's the common part here. And the aha moment, like Pastor Morundi always used to say, the aha moment is with this whole business of it's not fair. And so what what we need to do as we're working through these sixteen verses, the first sixteen verses of Matthew chapter twenty, is to discern what is that specific aspect the specific point of the kingdom of heaven that Jesus is teaching here. So we have a very common uh, situation. I I like to think of some of those places uh, here in Lincoln and throughout our country where people who don't have a job and they go to a specific spot and they get hired like a day laborer. And there are several of them here in town where if you need somebody to help you with yard work or scoop the snow or whatever, there's a group of people, mostly men, group of people standing around and they're waiting for somebody to come hire them. And it is a process that goes on throughout the day. Um, is, is that helpful to have that picture in our mind, Pastor, or is, is that leading us down a, a wrong rabbit hole?
0: no i think that is a good picture and so for example um like in California, when it's time to pick the grapes to make wine, you have to do it very quickly. Uh, you get together a group of people and that are willing to do the work, and you hire them, and they come, and they do it, and you pay them each day. And then I think it's worth pointing out as well that in uh, both Leviticus and Deuteronomy, uh, the law of God says that you must pay a person their wages each and every day before they go home, that it's actually against God's Word. Um, this is Old Testament. Uh, to withhold the wages and to pay them every other Friday or twice a month or however people are paid today. And so uh, there's both these things that are happening in that way.
1: Now, when we start out with this parable, it's talking about hiring laborers for the vineyard. Uh, there, there's a lot of vineyard imagery in Scripture, and especially i'm I'm thinking in the uh, the book of Isaiah, where God goes to his vineyard expecting a harvest, and there isn't anything there. Uh, we have many, many vineyard examples in Scripture. Is the fact that this parable is about workers in the vineyard? Is that incidental to the text? or is that important for us to have some sort of vineyard understanding? coming into this Word of God.
0: No, I think what Jesus does here is he uses a picture that uh, he's taught to the people in the Old Testament as well uh, that already is well understood, and he takes and applies it then to uh, specifically the Christian faith. And so it's not, as you said, there's Isaiah, there's Naboth's vineyard, there's all sorts of vineyard discussion in the Old Testament. We could even go all the way back to the idea of the Garden of Eden itself um, being a, a vineyard in a way, and the vineyard here is standing in for the places where god's faithful people are dwelling or living or moving or having their being and so this is a commonly understood picture for these people hearing this the first time so is the kingdom of heaven and this vineyard that we're
1: talking about here is this a picture of the church the church on earth the church in heaven how am i to how am i to understand that
0: I think you could say it's a picture of the church. Uh, Specifically, we're learning about the kingdom of heaven, and as we know, the kingdom of heaven uh, exists, yes, in the world to come, but it also exists here now in those who believe. We already are citizens of that kingdom uh, in faith and in baptism, uh, and yet we don't fully realize it yet. It's if we're still traveling there to enter in officially. Uh, And so uh, both of those things are probably true so long as we understand it correctly so as we're as we're winding
1: down this first session pastor when when we're talking about being hired to work in the vineyard is this uh, is this synonymous with the call to faith or conversion or again are we
0: uh, looking down the wrong path there um. Yeah, I think maybe that'd be a simple way of thinking about it. Um, I'm not sure that the parables are always detailed enough that we can do a one-to-one correspondence with each thing that's happening. I think the uh, the pictures that parables paint are oftentimes much more broad than that. Uh, and so I'd be a little careful in saying that, specifically in the sense that later on we have people within the kingdom complaining, uh, which which maybe would make that difficult to do a one-to-one correspondence with. Okay. Well, when we come back from our break, we're going to continue our look at Matthew
1: twenty one to 16, the parable of the laborers in the vineyard, gospel reading for Septuagesima Sunday. We'll be right back.
2: You are listening to KNNALP LP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. If you are still-
1: Welcome back to Proclaiming the One. Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, we're taking a look at the readings for Septuagesima Sunday, the first of our three pre-Lent Sundays before Ash Wednesday. This is a unique feature in the one-year series, Proclaiming the One. We proclaim the one and only Savior from sin, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we also do that as we work our way through the one-year series of readings. We're looking at the gospel reading for Septuagesima, Matthew 20, to 16. Jesus is tel- telling a kingdom parable. The kingdom of heaven is like, and it is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. We have this picture now, Pastor, where the master of the house, he, the, the harvest is ready he's got to get these laborers out and so he goes out early in the morning and he hires a crew. And then he goes out a little bit later in the morning and he hires a crew. And then he goes out a little bit later in the morning and he hires a crew. And then he goes out early in the afternoon and he hires a crew and it's almost dark, it's almost time for uh, the laborers to stop and he hires one more crew. Now, the only people that we see that he makes a promise is with the ones that he hired first. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into the vineyard. Well, as you mentioned in our first segment, it is, uh, it is, it is the ceremonial law or the Jewish uh, people law that uh, you have to pay everybody every day. And so now it's time to settle up. And the master of the house says, call the laborers, and we're at um, verse 8 in Matthew 20, call the laborers and pay them their wages, again, according to the law, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius, a full day's wage. And that's what begins the problem, or the grumbling. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, Matthew 20, verse 10. But each of them also received a, dar- a denarius. Is this, is this fair? Is this right? Uh, you know, according to labor law standards, uh, it's probably not fair, and it's not right. But again, Jesus is telling this kingdom of heaven parable to teach an aspect or a point in the kingdom of God. Are we at that point or at that sticking point right now, Pastor?
0: Well, I think what we have to do is we have to understand what's going on here. These people who are but mere workers are trying to impose their idea of what is right and wrong upon the man who sets the rules for working in the vineyard. And so we can almost go back and look at the same sort of thing happening in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. God has very clearly said, You may eat of any tree in the garden, but not this one. Uh, And what do Adam and Eve do? Well, they listen to a different word and they decide that their opinion on the matter is better than God's and they impose their will upon God and eat from that which they have been commanded not to. Uh, And so the same parallel is happening here with these folks. Um, They've Been told this is what they'll make, and now that they're getting to the point where they're getting paid, they say, Well, this isn't what I wanted, this isn't fair, and they're trying to impose their will upon the Lord of the vineyard. And that, in every case, uh, is sin. And so, you know, labor laws, they didn't exist back then. Uh, This is all. trying to put a modern context onto that, we can't do that. We have to let what happens here in the original speak for itself. And and so when we see that, we see the parallels between God and his kingdom uh, and these other events.
1: So when uh, the the owner of the vineyard meets his obligation, he pays the people that he hired at the beginning of the day a full day's wage, the owner of the vineyard keeps his word. And he keeps his obligation. He keeps his word. And some of the people are not happy. Mm-hmm. Some of the people want to change the rules in the middle of the game. And I think it's telling when uh, in verse 15, where the owner says, Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? I think here the the uh, owner is saying, Um, It's not that I have given you less than I have promised. I'm giving the ones who worked less time. I'm giving them more. I'm being uh, abundantly generous with them. How does that factor into what we're talking about, Pastor? Pastor?
0: Well, I think that's exactly the point, and that's what we have to understand is that God gives his gifts to everybody, uh, not according to human understanding or opinions or views. We can't impose our views upon him. And so he does this specifically with the gift of forgiveness, life, and salvation offered uh, through his son, Jesus Christ, which brings to us uh, eternal life in his kingdom. And and so uh, we as human beings like to compare time, right? So I've served as an elder in this church for 10 years. And so you're going to marry my daughter and her live-in boyfriend, whether you like it or not, Um, even though that same elder might have, you know, a few weeks before been okay with denying someone else the same uh, right. Um, or, you know, I've been a member at this church my whole life, and my father was a member here before me, and my grandfather helped form this church, and so we're going to do things my way, as if those things are the qualifications for having more of a say in what happens in a congregation than another. And that's not the way God works. God gives his gifts equally across the board, and and that's just the way he is. That's his generosity and his love and his care. doesn't matter if you're saved 10 seconds before, you die, or if you're saved at birth, God gives the same gift, eternal life, forgiveness of sins, and salvation. I've heard this text
1: preached in a mission context, Pastor, where the people who are hired late in the day are recent converts and the people who are hired in the middle of the day are maybe people who married into the faith, and the people who were hired at the beginning of the day were baptized Christians, and the people who have been around a long time tend to grumble that maybe we do too many things in the church to accommodate new converts or visitors or whatever. Is that a helpful way to look at this text, or is that missing uh, something that Jesus is pointing out?
0: Well, I think that practically is a reality that oftentimes happens. The church is not for—I'm going to sound like a jerk here, right? The church is not specifically for— Creating new Christians. I mean, it does that, but it is also for the Christians that already exist, and we have to remember that. And I think that's kind of where Christ's point is here. It doesn't matter if you're the new Christian or the old Christian or anything like that. What matters is if you are a Christian or not, if you've been in the vineyard working or not. And so that's the important point that. God wants you to get across. And so you could maybe uh, make all those points you're saying, but I think then you're also missing what the main point is. And and we as pastors have to remember that as well. Each Christian um, within the congregation uh, has been given the same gift, and we can't worry about all those other things that are happening. The length of time, who gives more or less, you know, who serves on more boards or committees, uh, all those things are peripheral to the really important matter. Does the person believe that Jesus died on the cross to forgive their sins? Uh, or not
1: what is the danger with laborers in the vineyard who are grumbling about the the way the the rules or the way the structure has been set up
0: by the owner of the vineyard what's the danger there well um so let's just take this example that christ has given us right They've complained and complained and complained. They might not be back in the vineyard the next week. And we see this where people uh, do this by—they they punish the congregation by going to visit a different place or by stopping giving their offering to support the congregation, things like that. And um, they, they think that by doing that, that they're going to manipulate the church or God uh, to get their way. And what they're doing then is sin, and sin kills faith, sin hurts faith, and it comes between people and God, and there's the real problem that we worry about as pastors. Um, You know, if a person withholds their offerings, we as pastors are concerned, um, not because of the offering part, I mean, obviously that hurts the congregation, but we're concerned because that's a spiritual issue that tells us that there's a problem in the faith that we need to address and deal with. And, uh, you know, God willing, we're able to do that, and the person will actually talk to us about it so we can get to the heart of the matter.
1: That is, uh, I think that's an outstanding point, Pastor. And when we realize that God's Word clearly teaches that people can fall from faith. And uh, each one of these Jesima Sundays has, a, has an aspect of the Sunday where it's talking about the danger of falling from faith. The grumbling can lead to a hardened heart. This hardened heart can lead to a despising of the means of grace. This can lead to actually falling from faith. You're no longer a laborer in the kingdom. You're on the outside looking in. And that is the absolute tragedy here. And so Jesus is teaching at the end uh, about his generosity and his love and his... uh, truthfulness in keeping his obligations and at the end and and, oh go ahead go ahead
0: add to that i mean we're this parable is dealing with it with terms of money but it's usually something way sillier than that right uh I almost mean, like always somebody moved the flag to a different part of the uh, sanctuary or um you know the communion wear is set up slightly differently or um, Flo- you flowers
1: know. are on the left side instead of the right side you mm-hmm. know silly or, things
0: or um, you know our your kid can't join sunday school till they're potty trained or i mean it's usually something silly you know even what's What's the pastor doing? Why isn't he doing what I want him to right this very moment uh, when I called him on the phone or whatever? Uh, all these sorts of things that are just silly things, and yet people let those things get in their craw and take them away from Jesus.
1: At the very end, the owner of the vineyard says, and and this is Jesus who is talking. So the last will be first and the first last. Uh, pastor, how are we to understand that text in light of this particular parable?
0: Well, um, Christ is teaching us not to put ourselves first, but rather to consider uh, the others there. And when we do that, uh, we're actually we are first because we're receiving the most important thing, which is God's forgiveness, grace, and mercy, the thing that Jesus is generous with. When we start to put ourselves first, uh, then we're not concerned about that anymore, and then we find out we're actually in last because we haven't received faith or God's word uh, and the blessings that come with that. And so it's the great... Um, I just lost the word, the great flipping, the great reversal. reversal. There's the word uh, that takes place here. And Jesus not only teaches that,
1: Jesus embodies it as he takes on flesh and blood. He uh, lowers himself as he takes on humanity and our sin and goes to the cross. He is despised as he hangs bleeding and dying on Calvary's cross. People would look at that picture and certainly say, this is the last person in the world that could be a savior from sin. And what does Jesus do with that? Jesus conquers sin, death, and the grave for us. So he not only says the word... He actually fulfills the word in his life, death, and resurrection. Wonderful, wonderful text. And we need to take a break. When we come back, we're going to take a look at our Old Testament reading for Septuagesima, Exodus 17, 1-7. Don't change that dial. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One, Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline. We are privileged to serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. We'd love to invite you to worship with us. We gather each Sunday at 8 and 1030 with Sunday school for all ages in between. We also gather Wednesday evenings year-round at 630. Please join us, won't you? We're located at 3825 Wildbriar Lane, just a little bit north of 40th and Old Cheney. You can also listen to every worship service that we have live on LP 95.7. Download the app so you can listen when you're outside of our uh, programming area. And you can also listen on the computer. Check out our archives, www.thecross957.org. Please give us your feedback, and uh, we'd love to hear from you. As we're looking at the readings for Septuagesima, the gospel reading that we looked at in our first two segments, Matthew 20, 1 to 16. Now we want to take a look at our Old Testament reading, Exodus 17. You know, whenever you hear Exodus, you're thinking of the children of Israel um, walking through dry ground, the Red Sea waters parted, slavery and death on one side, freedom and life on the other side. We've got Exodus 20, which is Moses on top of Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments inscribed with the very finger of God. So we're in between those two big events right here, Exodus
0: 17, 1-7. Pastor? and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Is
1: the Lord among us or not? That is a uh, uh, marvelous, marvelous Question, and I think that uh, that question is a key to so many of the problems that we have in life. We begin to question, we begin to doubt who God is, where God is, is God for me, is God against me, and uh, I think that's that's an important question. But before we before we tackle that, I want to I want to go back. We are in the wilderness. Wanderings of the children of Israel. We are in this time in between the crossing of the Red Sea and uh, at um, Mount Sinai. They are they are en route to go to Mount Sinai, and then they're going to wander for forty years after Mount Sinai. But we are we are traveling uh, uh, not necessarily in a direct route, kind of a roundabout way. They grumble about that too, but. Do the people have a legitimate gripe? They're out in the desert, and they're thirsty.
0: Pastor? Well, I mean... Yes, I suppose you could say that that's a legitimate concern for them. What the issue is, again, just like in the uh, gospel lesson, is that they're seeking to impose their will upon God. And in this case, they're doing so also, again, by grumbling, uh, just as Christians always do. Um, I, boy, careful how I say that, right? We, we do this all the time, right? We grumble so that we can get what we want. Um, you know, my kids do this when we're talking about what are we going to have for dinner. Well, this isn't my favorite. I don't like this. Why don't we have macaroni and cheese again? That's what the people are here doing instead of trusting God to provide for them and to care for them as he has promised. I mean, God turned the Nile River into blood, made there be darkness and frogs and gnats and uh, uh, sores and killed the firstborn, led them through the Red Sea with walls of water on each side. You think he did all that so that he'd let you dive— thirst in the desert? Of course not. Trust God. He'll provide. Uh, and uh, they're not doing that, and they're trying to manipulate God to get what they want.
1: And that's why that question that is asked in Exodus 17, verse 3, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? This, uh, this is certainly a statement, a question that uh, displays a tremendous lack of faith and lack of tr- lack of trust in the one true God who had miraculously delivered them.
0: Well, and looking at that particular question, where is their faith? Or who is their faith in? Maybe is the way to ask it correctly. Who are they grumbling to?
1: Right. Well, in verse to. two, it says they quarreled with Moses. Yeah, and so they're complaining. I suppose we
0: could look at it this way. They're complaining about their pastor. Right. As if it's his problem that what's happening is happening. And even uh, verse 3 there, right? Uh, Why did you, Moses, bring us out out of Egypt to kill us and our children and livestock with thirst? They're talking to him. Uh, And so even the way that they're dealing with this, they're not going to the person who's actually taking care of things. They're going to the um, mediator, if you will. The uh, quarreling with their pastor, quarreling with Moses,
1: grumbling against God, Uh, you can see the obvious connection here between this narrative in Exodus 17 and the gospel reading that we covered in our first two segments where the workers in the vineyard grumbled because they didn't think the owner of the vineyard was being fair with them or uh, wasn't generous enough or something like that. So we see the problem here. And then we see Moses cried out to the Lord. Uh, We see Moses as intercessor. Is that an important part of this particular narrative, Pastor?
0: In some regard, yes. Um, And I think that... Moses is teaching us the right place to take our grumblings and complaints and questions Uh, and so he takes them directly to the Lord, you know, take it to the Lord in prayer uh, (laughs) if if we want to quote that Um, and so that's what he does here and I think that uh, we as Christians ought to do this too we ought to be willing to talk to God and have a conversation with him. Now Moses is uh, in the sense that he's talking directly to God, he's standing in the shoes of what will come later in Jesus as uh, Christ is the one who intercedes for us Uh, Uh, who says, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do, Uh, and who even um, asks for us to be in the faith and forgiven completely and totally as we kill him. Uh, Christ does this for us later on, and in both these cases, they're doing the immediate intercession, and then they're also teaching us how we ought to pray also.
1: And uh, Jesus not only— was our intercessor. He continues to be our intercessor, and that's a really, really awesome thing for us to grasp as well. We, uh, we have the Lord who hears the cries of Moses on behalf of himself and behalf of the people, and uh, the Lord says to Moses, verse 5 of Exodus 17, "'Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go.'" Um, what is the significance of God attaching the promise to this staff, the same staff that he has used before?
0: Well, um, I think God is teaching us that he works through means. He doesn't just... um cause lightning to come from heaven or whatever, but he takes something that's rather ordinary, even a walking staff in this case, and he attaches his word and promise there and amazing things happen. And I think uh, he's doing this to teach us that so that we might understand baptism the Lord's Supper even more clearly, especially in this particular case with the water coming out of the rock. Um, I think that's a very important part of what's going on. We got to remember here God's not just operating on the fly, right? This is happening and so I'm responding. God knows all things and understands all things and he knows this is going to happen ahead of time and so he's using what the people are going to complain about to continue to teach us about what is to come in the future in Christ, in baptism, in the Lord's Supper, in the preaching of the Word and in the existence of the Church Uh, and so that's exactly what he's doing here as well, teaching us to look for God's Word connected to average, ordinary things.
1: It's not that the staff has some magical power. It's God's word attached to the staff. It's not Moses doing the doing. It's not the staff doing the doing, but it is the power of God in the word attached
0: to that physical tangible thing is that right pastor that is and i think we see that clearly then later on when moses gets a little big for his britches and tries to do the same thing without the word of god there and that's the reason then that moses is not able to enter the promised land oftentimes pastors do this also uh, if they think it's about them or that they are something special you know look at all the people i've brought into the church uh, god will Humble them and teach them that he's actually the Lord of the church. Uh, and sometimes he does so in rather severe fashion as well. We're going to talk specifically and uh, w-
1: with what the symbolism and references with regard to this rock in our next segment. And so I'm going to hold off from that. But God gives this strange, wacky, uh, absurd command. Take this staff and strike the rock, and out of the rock will come water. Again, let's emphasize this, Pastor. Did, did Moses know some secret spot and to touch the rock exactly, and then this water would come out? How in the world did water come out of the rock?
0: Well, um, and I know you're going to go here, right? But the the rock uh, has God's promise attached to it. The staff has God's promise attached to it, and so it's God that's doing the work. It's not Moses. It's not the staff. It's not the 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 rock. Is some. Uh, small cover over a natural spring that was already there for thousands of years, and Moses got really lucky. Uh, God's the one doing the work here, and we always have to understand that when we're reading Scripture. And uh, as we'll see from the book of Hebrews, I believe that this rock is Christ himself, and it then draws our attention to when Christ is stabbed with a spear and water and blood flowed out of his side. Uh, bringing forth the church. I love the pictures where you have the angels with the baptismal font and the chalice collecting what's flowing out of the side of Christ. Uh, that's a great picture that I think we're already being taught to look for here in this particular place in Exodus.
1: Very well. Now, last thing I want to talk about, Moses gives special names here, Massa and Meribah, because the people were grumbling and complaining, This is to remind the people that grumbling and complaining to God is futile. God loves you. God cares for you. He will guide you and protect you. I want to think about um, when Abraham and Sarah laughed at the promises of God, and then they named their son Laughter, Isaac, to remind them how foolish it is to laugh at the promises of God. Do we have some of that wordplay going on here, Pastor, with those names?
0: Yeah, I think we definitely do, Um, and God does this not to mock us or to uh, tease us or anything like that, but rather to teach us to continue to trust his word and promise uh, so that we hopefully, God willing, by his mercy, don't make those mistakes again in the future. That rhetorical question, is the Lord among
1: us or not, is answered with a resounding, absolutely. We need to take a short break. When we come back, we'll look at our epistle reading, 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through ten 5. Don't change that dial. We'll be right back.
2: Jesus is the of faith. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Be
1: You're justified by Jesus' blood. What a great hymn, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One, Pastor Clint Poppy, Pastor Adam Moline. We're taking a look today at the readings for the upcoming Sunday services. We are celebrating Septuagesima. It is the first of three pre Lent Sundays in the church year. And so you'll notice a very, very subtle, Move and a subtle change with regard to the worship as we are easing our way into Lent. During Lent, we refrain from singing the hymn of praise. We uh, refrain from singing alleluias. We put ourselves on a fast, if you want to think of that. And so some of those things will start to begin during these Gesima Sundays and will ease into our Lenten journey. As we are... Uh, wrapping up this particular episode of Proclaiming the One, we look now in our fourth segment at the epistle reading for Septuagesima, 1 Corinthians nine twenty four
0: through ten five. Pastor? Do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline, after, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Nevertheless, uh, we have uh, we
1: we have a marvelous word of God here from First Corinthians, the end of chapter nine, the first five verses in chapter ten, and we really have two separate segments that are brought together in the end of chapter nine and the beginning of chapter five. I'm I'm always uh, quick to say that the. Uh, The epistle reading is oftentimes a practical application of everything that we've talked about to this point, and I think that those end verses of chapter 9 are really that practical application. Uh, We are tempted to say, is the Lord among us or not? We don't necessarily like God's arrangement and this great reversal theology, Uh, the last will be first and the first will be last. We don't want to hear that it is possible for someone to fall from faith, even if they've been a Christian for a long, long period of time, or even like the Apostle Paul, one who's a bold missionary and proclaimer of the gospel. And yet that's what we have right here. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? What is the race that the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is talking about here?
0: Well, uh, he's comparing things to what the ancient Olympics were, if you will, where they had the races and you uh, raced to win a a wreath made out of leaves or whatever that you got to war to to wear. Uh, And he's comparing that then to the Christian life, if you will. And so we ought to live our Christian life as if we are going to get the reward, which the reward then would be eternal life with God in his kingdom. And this then uh, compares then also with the uh, parable of the vineyard and whatnot, where uh, rather than grumbling, we ought to live our life like we're getting the reward that God has promised to us. Uh, Can you imagine what a church could do if it didn't have to have a conflict about where the flag was in the sanctuary or where the plants were or, um, you know, what color uh, the inside of the building should be painted? You know, even in North Dakota, the one congregation, uh, this is before I was there, They painted the uh, inside of the sanctuary when a lady was on vacation because she was causing a problem about what color it should be painted. (laughs) You know, if we didn't have to do things that way, what could we actually accomplish in the church if we actually could live like Christians, knowing that we're all saved and that everybody's sins are forgiven? And that's what Paul's saying then. We're not just uh, uh, running aimlessly. We actually know we're going to win. We actually know what the prize is, and we ought to act accordingly.
1: Put your eyes on the prize. Uh, I can't help but think of the scene in the uh, the great movie Ben Hur, after uh, Charlton Heston Ben Hur wins the big uh, chariot race at the end, and he stands up in front of the people and Pontius Pilate puts a wreath on his head, and Pontius Pilate looks at Charlton Heston and says, "Today, you are the people's one true God, not tomorrow, not yesterday." Today, today, and that is the way the perishable wreath of the the trophies that we go and glom for, and it is not the imperishable wreath of everlasting life that the Apostle Paul is talking about here, and we are to exercise self-control in our lives. We are to discipline our bodies. Uh, I discipline my body and keep it under control. Pastor, what is Paul talking about? Disciplining the body, the this godly gift of self-control.
0: Well, Paul's talking about, uh, as we're Christians, we discipline our body in the sense that God's word says, um, thou shalt not murder. And so we discipline our bodies as Christians, knowing what Christ has done for us and that our salvation belongs only in him by seeking, then, to not murder, uh, in the same way that the racer would train by running the mile every day so they'd be ready for the mile race on uh, when the uh, meat arrives. So, too, we also start to train our bodies to try and do what God's Word says so that when the time is right, we are ready to be entered into his kingdom. Sin hurts faith. We discipline ourselves by seeking to avoid sin. And when we do sin, by confessing it and receiving absolution uh, so that that sin does not burden us or our consciences in the, the day-to-day life
1: isn't it amazing uh, last thought here that uh, after an athlete sometimes retires or an actor or actress sometimes retires they let themselves go they get fat and out of shape and unkempt and all that kind of stuff and uh that can happen in the christian life as well we, we take the gifts of God for granted, and we become lazy in our faith. And so, in a sense, can fall because we're disqualified because we've lost that gift of faith that God has given us.
0: And I think, not to be harsh or, or anything like that, we really struggle with that right here in the United States today. We take for granted that uh, the faith will always be here and that... Uh, uh, someday when our death draws near, we'll have a second chance to repent. We don't really think, perhaps, that Christ could return at any moment, or that we might die at any moment. We don't live accordingly, and uh, our apathy shows sometimes. The uh, first, or yeah, the first five verses of First Corinthians ten uh,
1: are are amazing verses, and I think we we've alluded to this a lot already. You talked in our previous segment about the. Uh, rock pointing forward to Christ and the wounds of Christ, the blood and the water, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Paul is really talking about that here in these words from first Corinthians ten. Uh, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Pastor, what's the significance of being baptized into Moses?
0: I thought we would want to be baptized into God well, um. We do want to be baptized into God, and yet the the reality is, I think Paul is really saying that um, they had the same thing happen to them that we did uh, in our baptism as well. And uh, when we, we have this verb here, or, sorry, uh, preposition, ace in the Greek, and all into Moses were baptized, and it's a difficult thing for us to translate into English, but the understanding, I think, that Paul is trying to get across here is that God is working in the same way. These people were baptized when they were with Moses and they went into the sea. Uh, These people ate the same spiritual food that we ate, the body and blood of Christ, when they ate the manna and drank from the rock. And God, therefore, is working the same way to create faith that he always has. He doesn't invent new things, and I think this is really important for us. The main thing behind all these things is what? It's not just plain water, but it is the Word of God in and with the water that does these things. It's not just plain bread and wine, but when God's Word is attached to it, it is Christ's body and blood. And so the Word is the thing that always has created faith and trusting that Word. And there's Paul's point then, uh, that they're really participating in the same things we do because they believed the same Word that we believe type antitype,
1: uh, a picture and fulfillment uh, all of those things come to my mind the uh, the statement that i want to uh, spend the rest of our time with pastor uh, they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ
0: i think i accidentally said that it was from hebrews earlier in our yeah, show so that's yeah that's all right that's I, my
1: mistake we we knew what you meant cuz we this <laughs> verse was coming the rock was Christ. So are we to understand, pastor, that the rock was literally Christ and that the rock or Christ moved with them in the desert in their wanderings so that they uh, they would not die of thirst? How are we to
0: understand that phrase, the rock was Christ? Well, um I think the way we understand it is we take it uh, at face value for what it says here. And I would submit to you even more than just that. I'd submit that the pillar of cloud and fire that led them was Christ. I'd submit that the burning bush was Christ. I'd submit that all these places where God is interacting with his people, uh, that Christ is here doing that in there. The angel of the Lord is Christ, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so... um, God doesn't change his modus operandi. He's always working the same way, and he's always bringing the same gifts. And uh, as a Trinitarian God, it's difficult for us to parse out all these particular things. And so, uh, yeah, I I take it at its face value. There's no reason to not take it at its face value. There's nothing here that would
1: give us a clue that God is talking in some sort of spiritual language or anything like that. No. Uh, The rock was Christ. Christ gave them uh, what to drink. Christ protected them in the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire. Christ spoke to them in the burning bush. This is God's word, and we do not have to shy away from it in any way, shape, or form. And that really answers the question, doesn't it? Is the Lord among us or not? Wherever Christ's word is proclaimed in its truth and purity, wherever the gifts of God are being distributed according to the command and promises of God, you can be sure, 100% absolutely sure that Christ is with you. Thanks be to God. Pastor, would you uh, please bring us to a close by praying the Collect of the Day for Septuagesima?
0: O Lord, graciously hear the prayers of your people, that we who justly suffer the consequence of our sin may be mercifully delivered by your goodness to the glory of your name. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Amen.
1: Thank you for tuning in today to Proclaiming the One. Uh, When you get out of bed on Sunday morning, read your paper, drink your coffee, Please pray for your pastor, but most of all, go to church. We'll see you again next week. God's richest blessings in Christ.